0: Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills
1: live and you are listening to inside the musician's brain i'm your host chris pandolfi from the infamous string dusters and today we've got episode 34 i've got a really great guest today in a few minutes chris funk from the Decemberist will join me we had a really really interesting conversation he's got some great and very experienced perspectives on all the changes in the music industry over the last 20 years they they signed a big deal with Capitol Records in 2005 and that was kind of the last gasp of the old school music industry and he gets really candid about that and everything that was going on with their contemporaries, the Shins, Modest Mouse, Death Cab for Cutie, really, really interesting stuff. And. Chris also has some great insights and philosophies on making music, producing, what makes a great song, and, and so much more. And I actually met Chris Funk at Newport Folk a few years back. It's a great story. He hit me up before the festival asking me to stick around for some big collaboration, but it was all very cryptic, and he couldn't tell me what it was. And so, of course, I was in you know, it was Newport Folk Festival, and I'm glad I was because it was a, a very cool and unique moment that we'll talk about here in just a moment. A quick word about my sponsor this season. Huge shout out to Deering Banjos. Deering makes beautiful, great sounding instruments all made right here in the USA. And they have by far the best affordable banjo option out there. That's the Good Time series. So if you're looking to get into banjo or you play something else and you want to dabble a little bit, the Good Time is your go-to. They also have a really tremendous website that's a great resource for aspiring banjoists, all kinds of great lesson content on there. And more recently, Deering has acquired ProPic. If you are a banjo player, a dobro player, or you use finger picks, you've seen ProPic out there for years and Deering has improved these designs. They've brought a thumb pick to the table, and I'm using the Heritage Finger Picks and their large thumb pick myself. These picks feel great, they sound great, can't recommend them highly enough, and I should also mention that our guest today, Chris Funk, endorses Deering banjos. You'll hear plenty of banjo on the Decembrus records at different points, and it all sounds great. So for all your banjo needs, make sure you check out Deering. inside the musician's brain is also brought to you by americana vibes that's the infamous string dusters record label and we've got a new string dusters release out just came out our tribute to flatten and scrugs and there's a lot of Other great music coming down the pipeline on Americana Vibes. Make sure you stay tuned there. We're also brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris is home to so much great music podcast content. Recently, I've been listening to No Simple Road. Loved the recent episode with my man Andy Frasco as a guest. And also, Inappropriate Happiness with Karina Reichman and Isaac Sloan. This is a fun podcast to listen to. Karina, of course, total badass. She's been a guest here on ITMB. Definitely take a spin through the Osiris catalog. Tons of great shows. So one more thing I want to do before we get rolling today is I want to do a quick conservation shout out. I did these last season and yeah, I just want to keep it rolling because it's so important. It's so important to me and I know how much of this audience cares about conservation efforts and taking care of the natural world. So I want to point all of you Denver fly fishermen to the Mile High 25. Super cool kind of concept fly fishing tournament. Check it out, hosted by Anglers All, one of my favorite shops here in Denver and also Orvis, Colorado. Of course, Orvis was a sponsor last season on the podcast and all proceeds go to Trout Unlimited Denver for their continued efforts on the Denver South Platte, which I love and I fish in regularly. I don't catch many fish in regularly because I'm carp fishing down there, and those things are hard to catch, but it's beautiful. They've done great work. They are very worthy of your support. If you're into fly fishing, if you're into conservation, check out Trout Unlimited. All right, onward to the music now and to wherever else we might go, I guess. I did get a lot of great feedback from the last episode which was definitely one of my favorites featuring Chris Wood. So thank you all for that. I definitely recommend going to check that one out if you're interested in how to be more present in your life, or if you're a musician, how to be more present with the music and just a deeper understanding of what self-expression is all about. And as always, hearing different perspectives on these topics, thinking through it in different ways can really help our own understanding of what they're all about and I love that these are the kind of topics that we're hitting more and more here on Inside the Musician's Brain. Really excited about that. So I've been trying this exercise that Chris lays out in that talk. And in a nutshell, the exercise that he gives to like bass students, for example, is to play. But while you're playing, you're mainly focused on listening to other elements of the music. So you're playing along with the recording or you're playing with your bandmates. And you're not focused on what you're doing. You're actually just focused on something else. It could be the baseline. It could be the beat, whatever. And you're tapping into the joy of what you're hearing and ultimately embracing this idea that self-expression is not really about you. It's about everything around you and your ability to be closely attuned to the environment around you, reacting more instinctually, more in the moment, not lost in thought, not focusing on yourself. And of course, what you're, What you're really practicing is immersing yourself in that aware state, that very present state. So you're practicing the state, getting into the state. You're not necessarily practicing scales or these other things, songs, repertoire, whatever. I mean, you can be, and you're kind of killing two birds with one stone if you are, but what you're really working on in this exercise is paying attention to something other than yourself. And I'm here to tell you that the exercise really presents an amazing challenge. It's, it's hard, it's difficult, but when you start to get it, even the little glimpses, you see how it can kind of be a door into that zone where you're very present, reacting very instinctually to everything that's going on around you. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a powerful thing. And I took it kind of even a step further, I guess, because it was so challenging for me. I just started to sit there with my instrument, listening to music on headphones, sitting there holding my instrument but not actually playing it, which is something that you rarely do or rarely do intentionally. You know, usually you're just waiting for the next bit of playing to start. And it was also really eye-opening, kind of bringing awareness to the act of listening while engaged with the act of playing. So I'm not actually playing, but with that banjo in the ready position, you know, I'm simulating that... That energy, but I'm working on the listening part of things, which I think is one of those things that we really take for granted because we think it just kind of happens automatically, but it's so critical to being present as a musician or even just a human being. Try really listening hard to someone. Try stretching to understand exactly what it is they're saying, exactly what it is they're feeling, and check out the kind of connection that that creates with someone. It's really a powerful thing, and it gets you focusing outward, not so much inward on on what's going on inside of you, but rather what's going on around you. And of course, there are other versions of this type of exercise and more outside the box teaching resources. And ultimately, they're all just trying to get you to do something different with the instrument in your hands. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you feel. Literally changes the chemistry of your brain and again as chris wood so eloquently lays out in our talk these are all just tools to create awareness and bring us into the moment and he references this new rick rubin book the creative act a way of being which i'm i'm holding in my hands right now here in my studio i haven't had a chance to read more than a few pages but i'm really excited for this one i've listened to a lot of rick rubin talks online and I recently listened to the Broken Record episode. That's Rick Rubin's podcast with Malcolm Gladwell, where Malcolm Gladwell, another favorite author, interviews Rick Rubin. And it's full of beautiful insights and much discussion about this new book that I just mentioned. And I'm sure I'll be referencing more of that here on Inside the Musician's Brain because we... As I said, we we kind of continue to trend in that direction, which is great. And one thing I love in their talk, which is very relevant here and heavily referenced in the Chris Wood episode, is the idea that self-expression is not actually about you. It's actually being hyper-attuned to everything around you. And it's very counterintuitive because so much in society today tells us that creativity and inspiration are a function of looking inward to what's to what's inside or to what's intrinsically us or to what we think is intrinsically us, but that's not actually how it works. Yes, of course there is something inside of us, but that something is largely a synthesis of all that we've observed, all that we've heard and seen and touched and felt in our lives, maybe even entirely composed of what we've observed. And that's a really good thing, and I won't unpack it all, but... but Check out the Reuben Gladwell conversation to hear much more about that. And then the job is to let that voice, whatever it's composed of, to let that voice speak based on whatever's going on around you in the moment and your ability to be tuned into listening to the music, listening to the people around you, familiar, strangers, whatever, just paying attention in an outward way in the act of doing whatever it is that you do. And that is... Oh man, that that's pretty much what it's all about right there. And these discussions that I'm referencing do, I think, a really beautiful job of helping us get closer to that very present state. Now we just now we just gotta go put in the work. So speaking of putting in the work, the Decemberists have been making Such great music for many years, over 20 years, and multi instrumentalist Chris Funk is a huge part of that sound. It was so great to learn more about their story, their trajectory, and hear more about Chris's projects, his philosophies about music, and so much more. So let's jump ahead now to my conversation with Chris Funk. Here we go. inside the musician's brain and my guest today is badass multi-instrumentalist producer and member of the influential rock band the Decemberists Chris Funk welcome to the podcast man
0: thanks for having
2: me it's good to see you good to hear you
1: likewise man uh it's been a minute in fact it it's been I think since around the time when we first met and our our origin story is an interesting one so I thought I would I would lead yeah. off on, on this topic of the uh, Kermit the Frog Rainbow Connection sit-in at the Newport Folk Festival a few years ago, where I was actually playing the banjo part of Kermit. But Chris was the <laughs> one who organized this whole thing. How did this come together?
2: Yeah, so I've, I've been working with Newport Folk Festival um, as a curator of a stage, uh, historically the Pete Seeger Memorial Stage called For Pete's Sake. And then I think it's two or three times now I've done uh, musical direction for these closing sets, which are kind of like the big wow at Newport. And I've been involved in kind of, I don't want to say co-curating, but helping Jay and the team there figure out who should come and what what that could look like. And then as a musical director, you know, what's the, what's the set look like and who's going to play with who, who's going to do what. So Somewhere along the line, Jay and I were discussing we got on this kick, Rainbow Connection, and of course, we said, "Well, let's get Kermit the Frog. Is that even possible? What's that look like?" And I, I had actually done um, a Super Bowl commercial as a music director to, as a music supervisor, one of the many other things I do. Um, and I, I, had the, I still had this email for the folks at Disney who, you know, own the property. This, which is a not very sexy way of saying, I had Kermit the Frog's phone number in my pocket, kind of. <laughs> and uh, Jay, you know, got involved and talked to them, and they said, Great, we'll bring Kermit. And then, um, and then along that, it was like, Well, Jim James, you know, loves the Muppets and he's got that voice. And <laughs> Jim James was the, the surprise guest for that, Kermit being a surprise as well. And then it was like, who's on site that can really play banjo? I can play banjo, but I was like, there's no way I'm going to stand on stage and play. Like, I'm not as good as you are at all. And uh, which isn't saying much because I'm not very good, period. But uh, you're a fantastic banjo player. I'm sure everybody listening knows that. Um, so you, you all were on site, I think, right? You were playing that Yeah, year. that's right. And then it was just like, dude, Pandolfi, let's get him to do it. So And you crushed it and um i can't remember did we actually rehearse it we kind of rehearsed it backstage day oh man it's so crazy did we
1: ever rehearse it yeah it was the whole thing was was kind of shrouded in mystery like you couldn't exactly tell me what was going on and just for everyone listening (laughs) just for like context sake we're talking about like the closing set on sunday at newport folk and if you've ever been to newport folk this is like one of the most iconic festival moments and I can picture it in my mind, the boat's in the harbor, it's a beautiful afternoon, and the whole event is kind of culminating in this special uh, special set with with different artists. And you had hit me up, and your first couple of communications to me were pretty cryptic. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, once we got sorry. on site, no, oh, that's okay, that's okay. Well, but, and But you said to me, you said, but you're going to want to do it. And so yeah, I took okay, I took your cool. word for it, and then, <laughs> thank re- you. Jumped in a go kart and whisked me away, and next thing you know, I'm you know speaking directly to Kermit and running over Rainbow Connection. So, and it was a duet between Jim James and Kermit the Frog, and oh man, it's late. Yeah,
2: yeah, and sadly, maybe not sadly, but to be the the real to be the banjo player for Kermit, you have to stand off stage and kind of be a banjo puppeteer yourself. So. I think I think we did give you a shout out or something, but you were it's actually true. off stage. I <laughs> but was, what, a, what a cool thing, right? I, I mean, it was
1: it was so cool. I was standing in the wings, actually, next to Jim James, and you know he's just looking amazing as Jim James always does, and <laughs> yeah. and he's got his wireless mic and he's about to stroll out onto stage. But I remember, you know, and it's those first few, you know, you know that iconic little banjo intro there. And got the nod from Team Kermit on stage and away we went. And I remember (laughs) I wasn't really visible from the crowd, but I did have a view out into the crowd. And it was so moving to see the reaction to this song and really kind of a great proof of concept around music and the way it connects you to the past and all these people who I'm sure had deep connections to this song from childhood and having children and it was like there wasn't a dry eye in the house.
2: No, absolutely. And you killed it. And those those sets are really nerve wracking and very last minute and rehearsed whenever people can get on site. So great job. Well great job. <laughs> I think we had the great job to I think you we had the too. Berkeley string it. section up there too. It was just like, oh my gosh, how's this gonna go? There's lots of corners for disaster and of course everybody's professional and does a great job, but you worry about it. So yeah, how does that? Was, that, that was how, our meeting. How does
1: that rank in the in the sort of history of all the sit-ins and collaborations you've done? That's got to be high up there on the uniqueness list.
2: I I think I think it has to be. I mean, like top two, maybe top, maybe the best one ever. <laughs> Jamming yeah, was, with a puppet.
1: You know? I know that it was really cool. <laughs> one thing. One thing I remember about the rehearsal, this was hilarious because Kermit the Frog, for those of you who don't know, is actually played by or brought to life by these four different guys, you know, and then I think they have a TM on top of that. And as we were rehearsing, I was sort of asking questions. And the guy who was sitting underneath kind of animating Kermit, or maybe it was the guy doing the banjo strings was sort of like, no, no, talk to Kermit. Don't, don't talk to me. Like talk to the frog. Yeah. You know? yeah. And yeah. it was, yeah. it was, uh, it was all very, it was all very cool. And then I remember we're in the golf cart riding back and I hear the two guys talking on the back of the go- the golf cart. And of course, if you're into doing puppets and you're doing Kermit, like you've sort of reach the top of the mountain there you know it's, it's like a pretty sweet gig and they're they're talking right, and the one, right. you know, one guy says to the other guy you know oh, what are you doing this weekend oh, i he's like I, I got a big bird thing back in la so i'm heading back there to-
0: <laughs> <laughs> so amazing <laughs> yeah really yeah, cool re-
2: yeah what a what a cool yeah you're, you're at the top of your puppet game if you're running kermit <laughs> i'd say and they were they were fantastic
1: well this is this is awesome For man. Sure. i'm glad that we are able to reconnect here and chat a little bit about music and life. So tell me, what what are you up to these days mostly in terms of your musical energy and your musical output?
2: Yeah, I take on a lot of projects. Um, (laughs) And um, so I I produce artists, which really slowed down during the pandemic and gave me pause, I think, for a lot of people, like reassess. I was really... I was making about like five to six records a year, which is a lot, um, you know, considering a record can take a month's track and a few weeks to mix. So I was, it made me pause and just sort of um, reassess if I want to keep producing as much. So I kind of stopped producing, um, producing being, you know, working with artists and helping them create an album in the studio. And I was running this place in Portland called Halfling that I left. And have slowly been creeping back into production and just trying to be more selective, um, which has been great. I've been working with Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers on a solo record for him. And then there's this band from Portland called Glitter Fox, who are amazing. Um, we're kind of in the middle of that record right now. Um, but yeah, doing that. And then also um, there's a band called Portugal The Man, who I've have done some co-writing with and they asked me to probably birthed out of that moment of Newport they asked me to come on and be their musical director for their tour um which people are always like what is a musical director and um you know we're we're friends and they live here and it's really helping them find auxiliary musicians and they've got a new record that's about to drop so it's like you know A lot of bands, they make a record in the studio and they're like, how do we play this thing live? (laughs) (laughs) So it's helping them sort that out and um, they have high ambition for kind of a really unusual set. So that will take up, that's taking up a lot of my time right now and that'll go through the summer. So Um, does that, does that include,
1: sorry to interrupt you, I'm just curious, the musical director gig, of course... Like you say, that's a great description of it too. Like you're helping them figure out how to bring this music that they've crafted in the studio to life. Are you also writing arrangements or is most of the musical stuff written and you're more finding musicians who can play and perform this stuff?
2: Yeah. Well, as John, the singer told me, he's like, I just want you to stand in front of the house and tell us if we suck or not. (laughs) (laughs) Which I laughed. I laughed just like that. And I was like, okay, I get it. I think because they have such a deep catalog and they want to like, they they do these like mashups live of their their own material with other artists, but huh. they're always interested in sort of like reimagining some of the back catalog and then kind of like singing choruses of other songs over the top of it. And um, it's kind of rare in indie rock. I think you hear that more in like hip hop, you know, where someone's like mixing a set and they like grab an instrumental of something and mm-hmm. put an acapella over the top of it. Um, so it's sort of helping them just really snake through all that. And then, um, yeah, so there is, yes, there's a lot of arranging going on. Um, the band is, uh, they're incredible musicians too. So they do a lot of self arranging and, you know. I also have to like watch the clock and be like, your Bonnaroo set, where we're playing in a few weeks, um, depending when this podcast is coming out, is only 60 minutes, so we have to like <laughs> contain the dream here a little bit, too. Yeah, um, that's,
1: a, that's a cool train to be on, though. Portugal the Man have a very cool story in terms of how they've been around for a long time, but later on yeah. in their career, they've really gotten a lot of notoriety.
2: Yeah, it dawned on me too and I I've, I've seen them play, but I was like, god, they're kind of a prog band, like they can kind of shred and they want to do that on this too. So it's really melding, you know, they've worked with a lot of large pop producers now, um, you know, from Danger Mouths to John Hill to Jeff Basker on this last record who did, you know, Basker did like Kanye West's big records and Bruno Mars. So those rec- those sound those albums that they've made with these folks have you know the drums aren't always live, but live they're a band. You know they mm-hmm. still have this like rock rock band indie rock sensibility. Yeah. So it's sort of trying to figure out how to serve all that together and kind of let the band shine also because the keyboard player Kyle is just an incredible keyboard player playing five keyboards at once, and John's an accomplished guitar player. Um, so it's really making sure that that's coming through as well while still serving these songs that have a lot of um, a lot of ears on it. You know. So it's been fun. It's kind of like producing live and dealing with personalities just it's just like producing a record except in the live arena so it kind of dawned on me so it's been a fun fun thing to try
1: that's very cool and i let's i want to talk a little bit more about the producing thing in a second but what are the decemberists up to these days
2: decemberists we did a tour last summer that was our 20th anniversary tour 23 years later due to covid so we did a tour it was great we played some new material on the road and then we came back in um in february we started recording and um We kind of just did like Let's stick our toes in the water And see what we want to do We're always trying to like Do something different with every record And it's like What is different What could be different about this record And I think what we realized After trying to do something different Which was to not use a producer Is like maybe we should use a producer (laughs) (laughs) So we'll start recording again um, Kind of like sprinkled in over the summer And then really gas it up this fall For a new record But no no dates just, Just recording So that band tends to That's why I like have intertwined all this other stuff in my life. The band at this point puts out a record and then tours and then goes away. You know, that's kind of how, what our rhythm is. Do you feel like that's, that's
1: kind of your guys flow or do you feel that's more dictated by kind of how the
2: industry works? No, that's definitely our flow. I mean, I think you look at bands like Wilco, right, who are, I don't want to call them a legacy band because that suggests they might be playing a casino. I think they're still very relevant, but like, um, and by the way, we've all played casinos. Um, like, I, I think it's just kind of where we're at in our careers. You know, Colin has a huge uh, career writing books. And, you know, I think we're just all interested in other things and yeah, want to, like, just keep it fun. Um, so, you know, I remember, like, the last tour we did behind a record, My friend, you know, friends coming out like, you guys have a record out? Like, I don't know how like on the radar that is anymore, how much that matters. And we're certainly a band that could go out and do that constantly. But I think we toured so hard for so many years that we're also like, how do we just keep this fresh and, you know, and keep it interesting to us, you know? uh, Yeah. So the pandemic definitely put a pause on any plans we had and kind of rippled it. But um, yeah, it's just kind of our choice. And I think everybody's happy with it. And, it makes uh, yeah, it makes yeah,
1: it makes sense, and it's interesting to kind of look at the timeline that your guys' career has covered because you sort of caught, I guess you could argue that you caught one of the last big waves of like the old school recorded music world. You know, I mean, we was, we we did. You're <laughs> correct. Yeah, yeah it absolutely. Was, it was in 2005 that you guys made the move to Capitol. Did. Crane Wife which is an awesome record and and I think like you guys kind of got some flack for that move back in the day but that was that was kind of like how how it was done and it seems to me I don't talk about that a little bit like that was kind of the one of the last big gasps of the old school recorded music industry
2: yeah for sure that that contract we got in under the wire (laughs) um so we started touring I don't know when we started touring. We say 2001, but it was before that. We signed with Kill Rock Stars, which is a great indie label.
1: Yeah,
2: home to Elliot Elliot Smith and Sleater Kinney, and on and on. Um, and it was at that time when we were touring. You know, CDs were still a thing. We could sell off the stage and really help fuel the tour. But I remember people. Coming out and like people really, like our first tour, like it, people were there and it was like, how did you find, like, how, I was just asked people, how did you find this? and It was like file sharing or bur- my friend burned a CD and I remember feeling like miffed about it. But in reality, that was like really, it really helped us in the touring realm and spread the, spread the gospel and allowed us to tour and then, yeah, there was a lot of bands jumping. It, you know, we were indies all get out then. You know, I remember seeing a, a McDonald's commercial with the shins in it and just being like blasphemy, like, oh my ah. God. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I think we watched, you know, our friends Death Cat for Cutie, they went to a major. And I think we watched the shins do that and Modest Mouse do it, who were all kind of our contemporaries. Um, and I think we were just interested to <coughs> see where it could go. And it, we really did. End up with a large contract uh, for, gosh, eight, seven. I don't know how many records. Six records, seven records. We made it all the way through. Wow. Never got dropped, and um, now we're out of that contract. So it'll be interesting to see what we do. But yeah, the budget then versus now is completely different. I mean, it was a you know a ton of cash to be paid to make a record, ostensibly, and those those days are certainly gone. But it's you know we've never had we've had successes in capital really. Um, helped us grow an audience for sure but I think also we probably could have done it without them not to be dismissive to Capital it's more dismissive to us because we did The Crane Wife and the second record we handed in was a 45 minute rock opera and the only song that was like marginally a single was about infanticide (laughs) so it's like we really didn't (laughs) give them much to work with (laughs) Like I think they were like okay this is cool
1: Um, Was that Hazards of Love? mm -hmm.
2: Yeah and yeah. our audience loved it and it's become our favorite for sure and kind cool. of uh, if you're a real December's fan that's tends to be their favorite
0: My July That.
2: So, yeah, you know, we never, we never cold played it. We never Katy perry it. We never, our our, contempt, our label mates, <laughs> we never hit that hard and really, you know, we were like, well, let's try to turn in a single or something, but we never lead with that. Um, you know, we have singles because we like a single style music, you know, like REM or something like that. Like, that's what we're working from. You know, we're music nerds and. We kind of shoot from the hip on that. So we deliver three-minute and 20-long-second songs just because we like it that way.
1: Right. Um,
2: so, so that, yeah, that's, it's funny. It's yeah. interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. So and you made it all the way through. Like, were there times yeah. along the way where you and Capital are both observing kind of the shifting sands of the music industry and thinking, I don't know, or... I don't know if this is working or do, do you need to renegotiate that along the way to kind of keep it in line with where the industry's at? How does that work?
2: Yeah, we di- we did take, I mean this is completely behind the curtain, but why not? Um, we did take reductions in our guaranteed advances, right, for the options for the further records. It wasn't much, but it, it and the argument being it was that conversation. It was like, well, when you guys signed, right. CDs were selling. So now, and it, we were like, okay, sure, as long as we can make a record and have enough money to kind of do whatever we want, you know. And that was us playing ball to be like, just leave us alone. Like we never handed a record in, and they were never like, what is this? Or you know, which they should have done with Hazards of Love. <laughs> but I also think capital. You know, it depends who's working there. With every record, there's a it, ostensibly a difference. Uh, Staff, a different AR person, different project manager, different president. So you can have to like reintroduce yourself. And people always just for some reason liked us and kind of just left us alone. You know, we never played, we never, I think there's a big, you know, that happens with like big artists where you have like um, a success and then they're like, we want to hear the next single because they're like, well, can we capitalize on that success further? And, you know, we had successes and we hit Billboard number one, but even then, it was they kind of just left us alone. And I think that's also part of our, our team in front of us, you know, um, helping us navigate that world.
1: Yeah, All right. that's so been interesting. An interesting ride. We'll get right back to my conversation with Chris Funk after this very short break.
0: Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. like our concerts on the corner series, whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music. We think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of gray street. That's so
1: interesting. So what's, what's the next move? Because you said you, the deal now, all these years later has run its course. With capital, yeah. And I'm sure they see that as a good investment because you guys have endured and have so many fans. But what do you do yeah. now
2: moving forward with your recorded music? That's kind of the question on the table. It's like, do we, you know, there's so many new models out there. I mean, I'm sure we'll ask Capital, hey, do you want to throw in an offer and see what's up? Um, because we enjoyed working with them. But, you know, there's models like 30 Tigers, right, yeah. which is a really – I'm sure you're aware of them. Um, yeah, we, which did, are, we did a record with those guys. Yeah, so it's like you yeah. administer your own funds, it's a distribution deal, and then it just becomes more work for your team. You know, it, 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 as far as I understand it, um, you know, for running the budgets and figuring out the marketing plans and all that kind of stuff, which, is, which could be a lot of fun if you're into that stuff. Um, I think we'll just go shopping for, you know, quote unquote shopping for a label and see who likes the band. And <clears throat> I'm sure finances will come down to it a little bit. Like um, here's how much we need to make a record. Here's some, you know, that kind of boring money stuff. But yeah, we're just going to go browse around. I mean, we literally just had this conversation with management. It was like, what, do, where do we want to go? Um, yeah So we, we don't know. And, and fortunately we can, make enough money and you know figure out how to spend and do our own release if we ever so- chose to do so at this point you know um the fan base is there so yeah it's kind of fun it's like oh what's next <laughs> yeah yeah you,
1: you said you said something interesting a second ago i'm curious about your guys records and how with each record you kind of try to do something different and i i noticed that yeah. on i'll be your girl it has some definitely some different sonic elements yeah. some Some synths, some kind of more modern sounds for a band that I mostly associate with like more of a roots sound. But is that, has that always been part of your guys' mission? Hey, let's take the opportunity to let every record be sort of like a different watermark, a different direction.
2: I think like there was this really, you know, at the beginning, We were, you know, the band started, it was centered around a a guy with an acoustic guitar, right? And then there was Mm -hmm. an accordion player and myself, and I pretty much only played pedal steel and an upright bass. And this was in a period in the Pacific Northwest when indie rock was like, two guitars based drums and we looked like some weird tango band or something <laughs> um and we signed to kill rock stars which was you know v- v- pretty much a punk label designed to support uh like the at the time what was called the riot girl movement out of olympia washington and elliot smith was the only thing that we came close to by you know acoustics i think um so I think once we did we did an EP called The Tain, which was just like this fun experiment of like getting into progressive rock and song cycles and making thematic albums, like you can call it a musical or a themed album. And from there that showed up on The Crane Wife with these song cycles and then Hazards of Love It went full tilt into a 45-minute rock opera <clears throat> of sorts, you know, folk opera. Um, so yeah, I think in that period, I think that was a really huge period for us and i think ever since then we've been like okay what can we do this next and then we did um uh, you know a record in a barn with gillian welsh and dave rawlings and you know tried to make this more americana record that sounded americana to us which i think it does for the most part there's a couple that don't um for the king is dead that's that record So, yeah, I I think we we try to push and be respectful to our fans and, you know, not suddenly become this full electronic band. That's what I'll Be Your Girl had some more synth on it. We worked with Mm -hmm. John Congleton, who's kind of known for his sonic landscapes um, that are a little more aggressive. I think also like what will be next? We went out and played some shows, and it it was that anniversary tour, and we played some new songs, and the band just played. It's like, well, maybe the novelty is just letting us play and just be who we are, (laughs) and not trying to like deep dive our record collections to sort of genre hop or anything like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so
0: I don't think you guys have earned
2: that. What's next?
1: Yeah, thanks. (laughs) I think you guys have earned that, and. There's a lot of great stuff through the catalog. You just mentioned um, "King Is Dead," "Down by the Water." I think that was like one of the first ones where I really, you know, had it on a playlist and 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 cool. got deep into it. And then it sort of like opened the door to the rest of the music. But I think it's really cool and sort of a a hallmark of the Decemberists is the variety of sound, but also there's a consistency there. There's a common thread. Um, you know, there are elements that really tie the whole catalog together in a really cool way and, uh, I look forward to what, whatever's coming next.
2: Thanks. Yeah, me too. I have no idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little, tell me a little bit more about your, your producing, because I know you're pretty Mm -hmm. active in the Portland scene and you, you know, you've got, uh, this new studio venture that's, that's kind of going on, but what. As far as your yeah. approach to producing and how the whole thing unfolds with artists and getting the best takes out of them in the studio, you know, what are, what are some of the kind of fundamentals for you about your approach to producing?
2: Yeah. I mean, I've worked with a variety of bands, um, you know, did a bunch of records with Steve Malcolmus, who's known for pavement, um, did his old band, the Jicks to, Red Fang, who are a stoner rock band to I don't know what else, but uh, <laughs> a bunch. and my my approach, I, like I, I try to like work with the songwriters before we get in the studio, so it's like send me a Dropbox file, and let's start listening to songs, and I'll just listen to songs and take notes and see if there's anything that makes sense thematically to pick from if they have a lot of material ready to go and kind of like keep honing that process out. And I start taking notes of what could be added or taken away or how we could reapproach songs. So by the time we're in the studio, at least we have something to we've already talked about and we're excited about. That's that's my favorite part is before we get to the studio. Uh, so we show up on day one with every song has a, <clears throat> I have these like sort of Excel sheet dry erase boards, so I'll call them, you know. Um, And I just put notes in there and just, if someone yells something out in the room, I like put Barry Sachs and song five, you know, timpani. And then, you know, a week later I'm like, what, why did we think that? (laughs) (laughs) But so I try to get that creative process flowing before we go in, in a big way and have meetings about that and just talk on the phone with the artists. And kind of the second thing I do if I'm working with a band is be like, who's, who's in charge here? Um, Who's the person in the room that really gets the. Uh, the last call on everything because having being in a band you know with a, a lead singer and this is what i learned as a quote unquote member side member side guy of the decemberists is that the songwriter ultimately will wind up with the last call right and bands might come in and be like we're a total democracy and i want everybody's song and it's like you know what that's bullshit like eventually it's going to come out where someone has the final say and it's just everybody's got great ideas, you know. At this point in my life, I'm working with great musicians. Everybody coming in is a great additive to; otherwise, they wouldn't be there, right? Um, and they're adding to these great songs that these people have dreamt up. So it's like, who's the person that gets the final say? That's really important because at this point in my life, I I don't care if there's tambourine on the track or not. <laughs> like I'm like, sure, you want to put tambourine on it? Great. Like what? Like what is the overall thing we're creating? And are is everybody happy with it? Even myself, I told this to the span Glitter Fox I'm working with, I'm like, I'm going to push you guys, I'm going to push your sound, we're going to grow your sound, it's going to get bigger, we're going to respect your past, but we're going to try to do something new, otherwise why am I here, you know, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, I default to them, I'm like, you got to live with this music the rest of your life, so if we, cha- if we double the outro and change the bridge, you better enjoy what I just recommended, so I will always default to them. And I may disagree with that still and be like, it was better the other way. (laughs) But I don't try to like oversell that and win my battles. And, you know, it's really about every day having high fives in the room and making progress. And we're exploring new territory while getting work done and being efficient. And that's the other thing I try to do is just be efficient. Like I'm a big like budgeter here's what we're going to accomplish today. Here's what we're going to go in. Here's what we're going to walk away with because I've seen bands just waste away in the studio. And, um, so it, that's where self doubt comes, you know? So yeah, that's some of my approaches. <laughs> so what do you, what do you mean by
1: that? That's where self doubt comes.
2: I think, I think you, like artists can just to like, they can just tend to, you know, what is the, who I think Colin on our band said, it, it starts to sound like overhandled meat. Maybe our drummer said that once. I was like, that's, I'm going to use that. I'm going to tuck that away. You can just work on something and work on something and work on something and lose perspective. You know, um, like with this band I was working with recently, they just, they were listening to the mixes every day and I'd get texts. They'd be like, this is so awesome. Next day, this is so great. This is so great. It's so great. And I was like, you know what? The best thing you could do right now is stop listening to these mixes. Like, (laughs) and I think you just have to step away from it, you know, and trust that you're really, there's always more. You can work on a song forever. And this is just a recording of a time period. Yeah. And then it's like, let's just get it done and let's move on to your next album. You know, and that's not being dismissive of something driving someone crazy. Like, let's go find it. Let's figure it out. Um, but it's, you know, it's important to, I think, work quickly and not overanalyze and think about sure. the song as a whole. And, sure. and not obsess on the small thing. And then I look to the person in the room, I'm like, do you like that? Okay, cool. Let's move on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a common I think that's a common theme, not only with our band, but also with a lot of artists I talk to. The deeper they get into sure. their career, just the more quickly they move in the studio, the more recordings are about right now and not necessarily this concept of forever. You know, they're a, they're a yeah they're a vision of what's going on right now. Songwriting, performance, all those different aspects. And I think that that, yeah. that helps you move through things more efficiently, but also helps you to get better results. You know, you kinda get to kill two yeah. birds with one stone.
2: I think, yeah, I mean, we're kind of broad strokes here, and I'm speaking specifically to the kind of music I work with, which tends to be song driven, you know, there's songs, there's a singer. Um, I think like you just have to really if the song is good, you can kind of do whatever you want to it. That's my that's my belief. Mm, you know. Okay. So cool. you want to add a string section over this or whatever? You know, it's like if the song's great. Like I I listened to your interview with Madison Cunningham. She's one of those people. All those songs are bulletproof. You know. I know. And, and thank thank God she's assembled herself and a team around her who are doing really interesting sonic landscapes to it. So it's like, man, that's the fun part, you know, the hard part's writing the song and the hard part's (laughs) getting that right. Cause you know, if you get enough ears on a good song, there's no stopping it. You know,
1: what about, what about the business of getting an artist in the zone, in the studio and really trying to get the best takes out of them?
2: Yeah, that's all over the place for all kinds. I mean, there's some people that like just want to check their email or they want to like walk out of the room and they don't want to do vocal performances because they know. And I I just say like, look, we can cut this again tomorrow too. If you don't like your, you come in here tomorrow, you don't like it, we'll recut the vocals. Like just knock it out. Um, I tend to work with musicians that are eager and want to be there, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but in terms of getting the best takes, I mean, it's with, with vocalists in particular, you just have to know their limitations. Sure. And that's a conversation I have early on. I'm like, how, how much have you recorded in the studio? How do you like to do your vocals? What do you want to hear in the vocals? Like, do you rather just sit in the room and do it in front of the speakers? Oh, I can do that. It's like, yeah, you can do that. You know, so it's making them comfortable. Yeah. Um, You know, we we don't spend our lives sitting around in these headphones singing songs. So if that's easier, great, there's, it's just being flexible and kind of like reading the room and zoning in on them when they're feeling it or not. And then at the end of the day, you know, like vocals in particular, um, you know, we come through it and we figure out what they like and they don't like. And I just like, cool. Again, don't overhandle this. Let's put it down and come back to it in two days if you want, you know, but let's chip away at it at least. so there's all kinds of tricks
1: (laughs) tell me about your new studio venture that you've got going on in iceland i know (laughs) my boys my boys green sky bluegrass are headed that way imminently and that was my first introduction to this spot flowkey studios what's up with this
2: yeah so what's a guy in portland oregon doing running a studio in iceland i'm glad you asked that's a great question um I, once again, through my friend Jay Sweet, who is the executive producer of Newport, he hit me up a couple, about a year and a half ago now, and was like, hey, what are you doing in two weeks? And I'm like, I'm actually making a record for someone. He's like, opportunity of a lifetime. Do you want to come to Iceland? And I was like, yeah, can it be like in three weeks, though? And he was like, no. So I was able to like shuffle this <laughs> session. And... um this basically my friend, uh, built a studio there who is, it's an American and they own, um, some like a hospitality company ostensibly. And the ownership was like, I want to build a studio next to our property in the North of Iceland. And here's the vision. And I showed up there and, um, I was like, where do I sign? This is incredible. So it's been fun. You know, I ran a studio here in Portland. I know how to run a studio and the ins and outs of it. And so I'm ostensibly, I've produced a couple things there, but my main job with them is to run the studio and populate the studio. And um, it's incredible. It's in the north, um, about four hours north of Reykjavik. It sits on the Arctic Circle, on the Arctic Sea. And um, it's in an old converted grocery store from the, uh, about 100 years ago. And it's, you know, it's got everything you want in it, analog. the the whole shebang. So it's been a lot of fun um, and been fun. I've been over there like seven or eight times in the past year, which has been great post pandemic just to get out of Portland and go somewhere else, you know, to this beautiful place, but it's such an incredible country and the music community there locally is super accommodating and friendly and warm. And obviously there's a lot of well-known artists from Iceland and it's for a reason. Um, They're just amazing people. Yeah. So Floki has been a really fun, fun project and within that also under this company we're starting a, a helping them start a label um, so it's been it's been fun to sort of itch that part of my my past I before I toured in the December so I did management and some other stuff in the industry so this is kind of like old hat for me reimagined yeah. in the digital digital age <laughs> That also. sounds yeah, that sounds really studio. cool. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, you so got- it,
1: your main gig is basically bringing great artists of this place to take advantage of the
2: resource for them specifically. Yeah. I, I would yeah. say I have many gigs. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, it's one of, one of the things I do, you know? Um, that's very yeah, cool. It's been really fun. Yeah. I,
1: I'm going to, come. I'm going to check it out. I've heard, I've heard some hype and you know, that's, it's gotta be cool if it's that far away. And people are still getting excited about it is the program that you go and there's a space there that you stay and it's all just happens i assume right in that one spot
2: yeah 100 percent. yeah it's in, it's very remote um we have staff that supports people when they get up there and because it's you know the north of iceland is no small feat uh, especially during the dark months in the winter of course you have the northern lights but you also have hurricane winds and it's certainly adventure recording, that's for sure. That's one of the coolest des- destination studios I've ever been to.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. I'm going to check it out. So tell yeah. me really quick, what's um What's the Portland scene like these days? I mean, this has Portland been your home for the duration of your career?
2: It has. Yeah. I've been here since 98. So I've been here a long time and never left and have been blessed to make a living doing music in all of its varieties from here performing or doing this other stuff to, you know, producing studio running. Um, the Portland scene right now, what is it like? I mean, there's a lot of Portland's, you know, a little beat up post pandemic and, yeah. you know, it's, it's not everything you see on the news, but it is somewhat true. <laughs> so in turn, I, I feel like there's still a lot of young people here making a lot of music. Um, and there's bands I you know I still go out and see a ton of bands and bands I'm discovering all the time so I don't know it's always just had this ever since I've been here it's had this um, identity and I think it's because there's houses here you can still rent and have a jam spot or something in the basement you know it's still fairly affordable for the west coast I think the weather kind of keeps it that way and yeah, there's a ton of great bands. I mean, there's like you know the Americana scene here, the old time scene here, the bluegrass scene. It's always been huge. Um, the indie rock scene, the punk scene. There's a great hip hop scene here. I'm always just you know diving into like who's who's doing what, and I'm always surprised that it's just as vibrant as it is. There's tons of studios here. That's great um, to hear. We just have never, yeah, we've never had that like industry sheen which is interesting given you know that kind of happened to seattle when the grunge thing happened but it's never quite happened here i think portland's a little a little sh- shubbier or something or blue collar or something in that way
1: portland's um, got such a cool energy though and i i love yeah. visiting portland and i actually just produced a great band from portland we tracked in kentucky but more in this sort of americana oh, cool. realm never come down is the name of the band oh, cool. and they yeah yeah, I know that band yeah, yeah we just did a record we just cut a record um it's getting mixed right now but you know that was sort awesome. of a, a door into kind of the vitality of that scene and I love visiting Portland and it had it has post-pandemic it's had a sort of crazy reputation as many places have as sort of the pressure cooker yeah. gets turned up but um, right right but I love to hear that because I love Portland and, you know, it's, it's got a great energy. Every time we visit, I
2: feel that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that'll go away. And I think the more uh, bad press we get, the more art you'll see come out of it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, yeah.
1: Chris, man, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really, really cool to connect again and to hear about all this awesome stuff that you're up to. I'm going to go check out flow key and um yeah, definitely glad, glad to have that on my radar. And, um, and yeah, man, thank you for your time and best of luck with everything. Absolutely. Chris Funk. Thanks so much for being on the podcast.
2: Yep. Thanks for having me.
1: That's a wrap on this episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you could, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps like you would not believe. Huge thanks to my guest this week, Chris Funk, and to my sponsor this season, Deering Banjos. Thanks also to Osiris Media and Americana Vibes for helping me make the podcast happen. The next episode will feature a really beautiful conversation that I had with powerhouse singer and amazing songwriter, Lindsay Liu, who has a phenomenal new record on the way and there's quite an amazing backstory to that one so you won't want to miss that and it'll all go down right here in two weeks when we go back inside the musician's brain
0: osiris tag team jane child meredith brooks looking glass sean mullins Eiffel 65 emf crash test dummies crazy town chumbawamba we have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week so pass the dutchy make sure you're connected and subscribe to one hit thunder wherever you get your pods
2: hey this is aaron from no simple road i'm inviting you to come hang out with apple mel and i as we talk with the musicians artists chefs authors and beyond from the world that turns us on we're reaching into the improvisational music scene the psychedelic culture the
0: festival world and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes come join us on the long strange trip over at no simple road